My dear brothers and sisters and friends, the best book to read is the Bible. We learned that a long time ago, some of us, didn't we? And we believe it even more now than we did when first it was taught us. The best book to read is the Bible. And of course it is, because it's God's book. It's God's word. It's the true, the living, abiding word of God. And every book within the Bible, and remember there are 66 of them all together, every book within the Bible has its own particular purpose in being there. In one sense, of course, they all share the same purpose. And surely that's to manifest, to declare the wonder and the glory of the one true living and eternal God, the great three in one and one in three, Father, Son and Holy Spirit. But at the same time and without any contradiction, we may say, and we do say, that every one of those 66 books in the one Bible, each is there for its own purpose. Just think, for example, of the first three books. Where does the Bible begin? Well, of course, with Genesis. What's Genesis there for? Well, it's there to set before us on a remarkably comprehensive and panoramic scale the majesty and the wonder of God in the three great spheres of creation, providence, and redemption. What's up next? Exodus. What's Exodus there for? Well, not least, to leave us in no doubt about the awesome majesty of the law of God. And then along comes Leviticus. What's Leviticus there for? How would you answer that one if somebody asked you? What's Leviticus there for? Well, surely, supremely, it's there to set forth for us the holiness of God and his people. It's supremely a book about holiness. Take a flying leap to the Psalms. What are the Psalms there for? Well, to declare the praises of Almighty God and to give us material that we might do the same. Often in the psalmist's own words, we love to use them, don't we? Take another leap to Matthew's Gospel. Why is that there? Well, most, amongst other reasons, to show that the Lord Jesus Christ is the true Messiah and the many fulfilments in him and only in him of the Old Testament prophecies concerning the Messiah. Another leap to Romans. What's Romans there for? Well, not least to set forth the glory of the gospel and its focus upon justification by grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone, to the glory of God alone. And one more leap. We can't leave out Revelation. What's Revelation all there for? Very especially to show us the battle between Christ and Satan and to show the outcome. Jesus wins. 
He's the victorious one. He's the conqueror. He's the all in all. So just some examples, dear ones, you see, to, to demonstrate that every book of the Bible has its own particular purpose. So then, what's the Song of Songs there for? You thought we were going there, perhaps? What's the Song of Songs there for? What's its purpose? Well, there's no doubt about it. And those who think there is are wrong. Give them no quarter. There's one great, supreme, overarching purpose as to why the Song of Songs in the Bible is in the Bible, and we are very thankful for it. And that is to set forth in a unique manner the relationship of union and communion that there is between the individual Christian and the Lord Jesus Christ, or taking it corporately, between the church and the Lord Jesus Christ. That's why the Song of Songs is there. And this wonderful relationship between the Christian and Christ, between the church and Christ, is set forth in this beautiful, beautiful book in the language of the mutual, passionate love of bridegroom and bride, where the bridegroom is the Lord Jesus Christ and the bride is the church made up of each and every redeemed Christian. And it's to the, the Song of Songs that we turn tonight. And it is the Song of Songs. It's not the Song of Solomon. It's often known as that. Admittedly, it begins the Song of Songs, which is Solomon's, indicating to us that Solomon, under the direct inspiration of the Holy Spirit, was given it and wrote it. But it's not the Song of Solomon. It's the Song of Songs. And that's what we call a, a Hebraism, a particular way of expression in the Hebrew language. The Song of Songs, Sheer Shireen. And it means the best song, the highest song, the finest song, the most excellent song, the most glorious song. And we've already intimated why, haven't we? Because of what it's about, this union and communion. And it, it proceeds again, as we've hinted, in the language of love. Now, think about people who are in love speaking one with another. Sometimes one of the lovers is speaking. And sometimes, this is just in regular conversation of romance, sometimes uh, the other lover is speaking. Sometimes, because they've got so much they want to say to each other, it's a job to know which one's speaking. They're interrupting one another, interjecting, speaking over one another because they can't confess their mutual love to one another fast enough. So then, in this relationship, think of it in the individual sense, between the Christian and Christ here in the Song of Songs, 
come to this evening's text. I give you chapter 1 and verse 5. The Song of Songs, chapter 1 and verse 5. And we read these words. I am dark but lovely. O daughters of Jerusalem, like the tents of Kedar, like the curtains of Solomon. I am dark, but lovely, O daughters of Jerusalem, <clears throat> like the tents of Kedar, like the curtains of Solomon. Now who's speaking the language of love here? Is this the Christian speaking of him, herself, himself, herself? Or is it the Lord Jesus Christ speaking? Who is it? Sometimes, and you'll notice this whenever you study the Song of Songs, sometimes it's very obvious who's speaking. It's plainly the Christian here, it's plainly Christ there. Sometimes it's very obvious. But sometimes, as a footnote certainly in my Bible here puts it, occasionally the identity is not certain. And so... Who's speaking here? To which question I give you this answer. Our text tonight may be taken in two ways. We may take it this way. The Christian speaking of him or herself. One person speaking. So we call that a monologue. Or... We may take it as the Christian and the Lord Jesus Christ both speaking here at different points in the verse. So two people speaking, and so we call that a dialogue. And it's not a case between these two ways of either or, one's right, one's wrong. I put it to you, dear ones, that it's a case, and I hope we shall see this, to our great encouragement. It's a case of both and. Not instead of, but as well as. So off we go. There awaits here for us some of the richer, deeper, and more precious currents of spiritual experience. We'll call the message the two beloveds. The two beloveds. First of all, the one way of taking it, first of all, one person speaking a monologue. That's number one. One person speaking a monologue. On this reading of the text, here the Christian, could be you, could be me, here the Christian is speaking of themselves, addressing the daughters of Jerusalem. You see that phrase, O daughters of Jerusalem. Don't be puzzled by that. Let's just say that in the wider context of the song, we take the daughters of Jerusalem to refer to believers who are young in the faith. 
So here's the Christian speaking of him or herself. Saying what? Well, saying, I am dark but lovely. The Hebrew is emphatic. It's not I am dark, it's dark I am. And there's a difference of emphasis there, isn't it? Dark I am, but lovely. Dark here can also be translated black, and sometimes is. Lovely here can also be translated comely, pleasant, attractive. So here's the Christian, I say it could be you, it could be me, saying about ourselves, not about somebody else, saying about ourselves, I am dark, but lovely. Strange language? Maybe it is to us. Meaning what? Well, meaning at root this. I'm saved by grace, but I'm still a sinner. Still prone, sadly to my sorrow and shame, still all too prone to sin and frailty and weakness, but gloriously and graciously saved. And all that through the Lord Jesus Christ. Can you catch what I mean? Isn't this you, dear Christian? Dark of yourself, lovely in Christ. Isn't that you? Just as it's me. Conscious of sin, yet rejoicing in grace. Dark in ourselves, but made lovely in Jesus. Burdened in many ways with trials and sorrows, yet marvelously upheld by divine strength and consolation. Poor and needy, yet continually supplied. Not yet what we shall be, but no longer what we were. We're reminded of a couple of classics from the Apostle Paul, which touch on this same matter. There's the famous Romans 7, 24. Oh, wretched man that I am. This is, the, this is Paul the Christian speaking here. And not saved yesterday either. Oh, wretched man that I am. Who will deliver me from this body of death, dark I am, yet straight away in the next verse, I thank God through Jesus Christ our Lord. Dark I am, but lovely. Dark in me, lovely in him. Or we could turn over a couple of epistles to Second Corinthians and chapter 6. Taking it from verse 8. As deceivers, how they were regarded, how he was regarded by many, as deceivers and yet true, as unknown and yet well known, as dying and behold we live, as chastened and yet not killed, as sorrowful yet always rejoicing, as poor 
yet making many rich, and this beauty, as having nothing, that's in me, and yet possessing all things, that's in the Lord Jesus Christ. Now, it could be that, that your response to this is to say, surely this doesn't seem right for the bride of Christ to go on about being dark, dark, dark. But I say to you, dear ones, that surely it would rather be strange if this were not so. Those who are always so full of their progress in sanctification perhaps betray dangerous signs that they've forgotten what sinners they were and now are forgetting what sinners they still are. In reality, the history of God's people illustrates the truth that those of his ransomed ones who have made most progress in holiness, those who seem to us to have the closest and most consistent walk with God, those who hold the deepest communion with Jesus, those who, as we observe them, seem to be so, so very full of the Holy Spirit, those of whom it may truly be said that heaven is in them before they are in heaven. They're the ones, dear ones, they're the ones who are most aware of and most grieved over their lack of holiness, their lack of growing in grace and in the knowledge of the Saviour. They're the ones. It's a strange thing and hard for it to comprehend. But the lovelier in Christ they so often appear to us. These dear precious holy ones who we feel are so further on from the rest of us in the life and walk of grace. They seem so lovely in Christ to us. But don't be surprised that they're the ones who feel most dark in themselves. Unless you're wondering what the second part of the verse means, remember the Christian still speaking, like the tents of Kedah, like the curtains of Solomon, it's rather like saying in different language what has just been said in I am dark but lovely. Remember this is a book of poetry. Poetry. Let me explain. For her darkness, the believer, the bride, compares herself to the tents of Kedar. Now, Kedar refers to a nomadic desert tribe descended from one of the sons of Ishmael. And their tents were made from black or dark goatskin and became blackened even further by constant exposure to the sun. And for her loveliness in Christ, the believer describes 
herself here as like the curtains of Solomon, which in contrast to the tents of Kedar were precious hangings of great richness and colour and value and beauty, and remind us that for all our still remaining and indwelling sins and our struggles and our battles, we have, as scripture puts it, put on the Lord Jesus Christ. Or as we have it so beautifully in Isaiah 61, we are clothed with the garments of salvation and covered with the robe of Christ's righteousness as a bride adorns herself with her jewels. You know, although God's people, his saints, are called in Scripture in one place, the excellent of the earth. Christians really are a mystery, an enigma, a paradox. And that's what in, what's in view here. Yes, dark, but lovely. Yes, like the tents of Kedah, but yes, like the curtains of Solomon. Dark in ourselves, lovely in Jesus. And lest, dear brothers and sisters, you should ever have moments of utter despair in your Christian life, feeling that you make so little progress and you are so far from Christ-likeness even after many, many years. Lest you ever get into that sort of state, and let's face it, which of us sometimes doesn't. Always remember, and you've heard it from this pulpit a few times before from different ones of us, here it is again. Always remember the classic words of our dear old friend, Robert Murray McChain of Dundee. And these are his classic words. For every one look that you take at yourself, be sure to take at least ten looks at the Lord Jesus Christ. Got it? Yes, indeed. So, one way of taking the verse, one person speaking, a monologue. But we said there are two ways, and we don't choose between them. We take them both. We take them both. And so, on to the as well as understanding of the text. And let's spend some precious moments on this before we're done. So, number two, and just these two things before tonight. One person speaking a monologue, but now number two, two people speaking a dialogue. And taking our text this way, chapter 1, verse 5, reads as follows. Listen closely. Christian, I am dark. The Lord Jesus... Interrupting, but lovely. Christian again, like the tents of Kedah. The Lord Jesus, interrupting again, 
like the curtains of Solomon. I say interrupting. You could almost say contradicting. Though that wouldn't really be the best word. The Christian saying of himself, herself, I'm dark like the tents of Kedar. And expressing that, even to our beloved Saviour, Lord, this is me. And Jesus' response, you say that of yourself? But to me, you're lovely. To me, you're like the curtains of Solomon. I ask you, isn't that the most encouraging and heartwarming thing you could ever wish to hear in your Christian life? Isn't that a blessing to you? I'll own up, it's a blessing to me. I know my own heart. <coughs> and I guess if you know yours as you ought to, it should be a blessing to you as well. That being as we are through grace, accepted in the beloved, no longer our own, bought with a price. Wasn't it, wasn't it absolutely glorious to sing wounded for me? What a beauty. Lovely to have that one again. Absolutely wonderful. My heart thrilled and I hope yours did as well. Wounded for me. For me. There on the cross he was wounded for me. Gone my transgressions and now I am free. How can it be so? All because Jesus was wounded for me. What a glorious hymn and what a glorious truth. So, accepted in the beloved no longer our own, but belonging to another. Indeed, as Paul puts it in one place, we are married to another. That's song of songs language, isn't it? We're married to another. We're a bride with a bridegroom. To know this, to be given grace to believe it and to hang on to it, what a blessing it is to know that whatever our state or condition in the Christian life, Whatever our progress or lack of it in the Christian walk to the Lord Jesus Christ, we're not dark, we're lovely. To the Lord Jesus Christ, we're not like the tents of Kedar, we're like the curtains of Solomon. But dear ones, let's never, never, never use that as an excuse for sinning. We never have any excuse for sinning. Let me just, in what I trust is a very proper and not in any way an improper way, amplify this dialogue a little bit. For us to say I am dark, but Jesus to say but lovely. For us to say I'm like the tents of Kedar, but Jesus to say you're like the curtains of Solomon. It's really a dialogue like this, and I'll put it in the personal Christian language, even though it's equally applicable to the church 
collective language. But let's, uh, let's keep it personal tonight. It goes like this. The Christian and the Lord Jesus in dialogue together. And can, can you identify with what's just coming up now? The dialogue would go something like this. Lord, I am so conscious of my sin and weakness. And Jesus says to us, but to me, you're lovely. Lord, I feel so crushingly my lack of holiness and godliness and Christ-likeness. And Jesus replies, to me, you're lovely. Lord, I seem to bear so very little fruit in service, year after year after year. To me, the Lord Jesus says, you're lovely. Lord, I've lost count of the number of times I've let you down, dishonoured, even disgraced you. And how does the Lord Jesus respond? To me, you're lovely. Lord, I'm so shamefully aware that my worship of you with the Father and the Holy Spirit is so often such a poor and a thin and an inadequate thing. And Jesus persists in replying, but remember this, think on this, to me, you're lovely. Lord, I'm so often assailed as a Christian with so many doubts and fears and spiritual struggles and failures. But to me, he says, you're lovely. Lord, I know I could and should be so much more heavenly minded and heavenly prepared than I am. And how does Jesus respond? He says to me, you're lovely. Amazingly, dear ones, absolutely amazingly, he looks at us. And what does he see? Does he see the tents of Kedar? No, he doesn't. Then what does he see? He sees the curtains of Solomon. Not the darkness of the tents, but the loveliness of of the curtains his loveliness that he's given to us
That's how he sees us. He does. He really does. He says so. He sees us as we sometimes sing, clothed in his righteousness alone, faultless to stand before the throne. How are you with your old songs? Do you know this one? How sweet it is to be loved by you. Remember that one? Well, isn't it sweetest of all to be loved by Jesus? Isn't that the love which passes knowledge? Isn't that the love of every love the best? Isn't this again as we sometimes sing, his love to the loveless shown, that we might lovely be in him, through him, on account of him, no other grounds. And so, as we close, how, how should we respond? Well, if you're not yet a Christian, I ask you this. How could you not love this Lord Jesus Christ who came into the world and went all the way to the cross at Calvary to save perishing sinners just as you are? And if you're already a Christian, then I say to you, my brother and my sister, whether you're a new Christian or, or a veteran Christian, I ask you this. How could you, how could I not love this Lord Jesus Christ more and more and more with every passing hour and every passing day? Let a lovely godly lady, the late American Christian, Elizabeth Payson Prentice, speak for all of us. This is the first stanza of a hymn she wrote. And it goes like this. Perhaps you know it, perhaps you don't, but it's a good one. This is just the first stanza. More love to thee, O Christ. More love to thee. Hear thou the prayer I make on bended knee. This is my earnest plea. More love, O Christ, to thee. More love to thee. More love to thee. It's in our church hymn book, 738. Have a look at it sometime. Have a meditate. Have a blessing. 738. So then, how do you see yourself tonight? How do you see yourself tonight? We know well from our text. But how does the Lord Jesus Christ see you? How does he see us tonight? Those for whom he shed his blood and died at Calvary. Well, we know that. We've seen that from our text as well. So remember this as we close. However you see yourself and know your heart in all truthfulness and honesty, 
Remember this and go on your way home from here tonight and keep on remembering it all through this coming week. Remember this. Never forget it. Nothing in the whole world, I say nothing in the whole world, matters as much as this, dear believer. That the Lord Jesus Christ calls us and regards us as his bride to be lovely. To be lovely. I say again, nothing in the whole world matters as much as this. Dear ones, nothing at all. Amen.